Yep. Da da No wait, that's Indiana Jones, right? Okay, so who's introducing today? I am. And welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about classical stuff you should know. It's good. Put on Nailed by <laughs> three people who know classical stuff that you should know. Oh, wow. my word. Best intro? Best that, intro. That's, how, that's, a, that's Keeper. That's how we should do it. Anyway, uh, it is Classical Stuff You Should Know, and I am welcome Graham Donaldson, podcast. one of your hosts, and I am joined with Thomas Magby. Hey. Affectionately known as Bees. Yes. Yep. And AJ Hannenberg. That's me. Affectionately known as AJ. Yep. Okay. Or Bird yeah. sometime. Or Bird. Something. Um, you know what? This today is the New Year's podcast. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. 2018. So, good morning. Happy New Year's. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to 2018. Thanks for celebrating with us. The year is so happy to see yeah. you. We're overjoyed that you're alive. Um, I guess this is, we usually drop these on a Tuesday. I don't know what day New Year's is. No, it, this is dropping on New Year's Day. On New Year's Day, the first. We hope you had a great time last night. Um, uh, we hope you sang. Oh, just kidding. That was last nope. night. That was this last is night. Tuesday. Happy, happy second day happy. of the new year. Hope it's been incredible. That first day was probably great. Yeah. Day two is going to be just as good. Stick with those resolutions. Stick it's with those. Day number Stick two. with it. Um, yeah, resolutions. I wonder if that's a classical thing. Maybe not. Probably not. Um, but... Thinking about what is ideal is a classical thing. Sure. <laughs> yep. And um, nice segue. Thank you guys. This is why I'm here. Um, <laughs> and so today's topic is going to be AJ Hannenberg talking about I think the ideal type. Yeah. So this is kind of to what we should have done at the beginning of this entire podcast was talk about what classical education is and why we do it and what makes it different than other types of but education. You've pieced it together. We said that for a few episodes yeah, now. Yeah, but we, we were actually putting it together. We got yeah. we had yours what the last one and then we have the trivium and now the ideal type. And so you're gonna get kind of a good picture of what it is that we do and why we do it and yeah. why classical education matters, even for you as you know, an adult or a teenager, however old you are, why it matters continually in your life. Um, so I was talking about education. It's one of the first things I do with my ninth grade classes. And I define, we taught, we try to ask ourselves, what is the point? Why are we here? Because ninth graders generally don't know. Mm. They, they have some sort of vague notion that they're there for college and for money, maybe, and jobs and maybe skills and also parents and somehow homework works into the mix. They don't, it's, it's all kind of a jumble. And so we spend the entire first day asking, what is the point? Why do we do education? What is the essence and end goal? And they we just wake up, get pushed into a van with their siblings, and they just end up. up here, and then they're kind of just looking around like lost little puppies. Yeah. And, and when you're young, I mean, you have to go to school. They don't need to know why they're there. They just need to do it. And uh, you honestly, they probably don't care why they're there. They're learning right. about sharks and numbers and colors and it's fine. <clears throat> but when they hit high school, they start asking these questions and they have to know. Otherwise, their motivation just goes right in the tank. So the rhetoric stage. Yeah. So I gave a definition that I think it's, oh, you're going to have to remind me who said it originally, but it's education is teaching a student to love what they ought to love or what is worth loving. Isn't that uh, Isn't it ter- or, no. no Tertullian? Who is it? It's not Tertullian. Loving what they ought to love is Aristotle, right? 
Uh, uh, uh. Definitely one of those three. Okay, well, it's a person, and they're old. And <laughs> I, I knew it when I said it in class. Man, I'm crushing this. And one of my students says, and, and aptly asked the question, oh, well, who decides what is Aristotle. good? Aristotle. The aim of education Aristotle. is to make people like and dislike what he ought. Can we just, who, who said Aristotle? I don't remember. I'm sure it's not important. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Does that make up for the hair-horse confusion from... Oh, gosh, I hope so. Cheveux? Cheveux. Cheveux. All right, keep going. Uh, so he asked, you know, who decides what is worth loving and what is good, right? And I said, and I, I probably gave not a great answer. I said, well... I, I do. We the, <laughs> the administration does, and there's a certain element of of trust in Big that. Big brother. Yeah, and I oh, couldn't wow. I couldn't stop thinking about his question. And the truth is, that's partially the right answer. I do decide what is worth loving in class. The administration decides what is worth teaching to the students. They have decided what is good to teach students. And I think his point was that why am I not the one deciding? And the truth mm. is, even in non-classical education, those decisions are still being made. They're just, right. not, you know, they, they are claimed they're, they're not making them, right? The decision is still what books are worth studying, that math is a thing worth knowing, mm. that English is a thing worth mastering. Like, they're still making those decisions. They just don't do it overtly, I guess. And we're going through, like, a real interesting time in education, we don't need to talk about this, but it's just worth noting, where some of those questions more fundamentally are being asked, like, like why read books? At all. Like, like right. novels. And we're going we're gonna to get there. Okay, so, cool. um, so, yes, our administration is making these decisions, but they're not making these decisions lightly, and they're not doing it alone. They're doing it based on what is called in a book by David V. Hicks called Norms and Nobility as the ideal type, right? They're basing it on something called the ideal type, which for centuries and centuries and centuries, man has understood that there is sort of an ideal way for man to live. And they haven't necessarily known exactly what it is. And it's, you know, everyone has a little bit of a different definition, but they're all aiming towards the same thing. And they believe, more importantly, that it's out there, that there is a way for man to live that is good, and philosophy is primarily aimed at defining what that type is. It's not questioning whether it exists, it's questioning on how is the best way to get there. And it's espoused in a few different places. Um, and this is, I, I'm going to need your guys' help on this because these ideas are really big. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of philosophy here. And it's something I've thought, I should probably be doing this in like a five-part lecture series um, some of the pieces we're going to get to later, one of them is C.S. Lewis's idea of the Tao. And he talks about the Tao in the second chapter of The Abolition of Man. And it's the notion, and I'll, I'll do a whole episode on this later, so I don't want to go too far into it, but it's the notion that there is a unchallengeable moral background to everything that we do. And yes, it can shift, and yes, there are disagreements about what exactly is most important there. Like some virtues get overblown. I'd say in our age, it's the virtue of tolerance. In other ages, uh, probably around World War II, it was the 
it was bre- uh, bravery and thrift, right? Those got blown way out over everything else. In ancient Rome, it could have been honor and family's name. Yep. In g- ancient Greece, it was glory, right? One virtue gets blown over the others, often to its own detriment and their detriment, right? The virtues run a little wild. But the Tao says that it is still, even if it's overblown in various ages, it is still a virtue. It is sort of an objective, virtuous thing. Right. And we have a hard time. You, you cannot even challenge the Tao without admitting that there is one, because the moment that you challenge it, you are admitting that truth is a good thing and that knowing truth is better than knowing untruth. And that is an unquestionable piece of the Tao, right? That that is a right thing. And yes, some people point to Sparta where kids are taught to steal, right? That where stealing is taught and lauded as a virtue, but that's, that is the exception that proves the rule. Or it's being done in a way to to, to accomplish to military up, victory, to which big up is, a different part of the Tao. Yeah, so it's a virtue expressed in a different way, and and it proves the rule because we we simply cannot fathom a world where where cowardice is not only allowed but encouraged universally in an entire people. And if it and if we find one people where they're like we're all cowards, we try to stay out of everything, then. It's remarkable because it is different than what everything else, everything else does, right? Yeah. It's the exception that proves the rule. And they're doing, and the reason often the case that why they're doing that one thing, cowardice, is because they've really focused on another part of the Tao that they that they find to be central to their understanding of what it means to right, be right, which a human is being. sometimes survival. Yeah. Or for right. the for the Spartans, it was military victory, sure. right? Glory on the battlefield. Okay. And so that's that's the idea of the Tao. And, and you're saying we're going to do a full podcast on the Tao at some point. Well, we may we have just done should. it on accident. But <laughs> I'm a whole week we, we do one on the three different chapters of Abolition of Man sometime in the future because each one is totally worth its own episode. Okay. But the idea of the Tao, that there is there is an unchallengeable assumption of moral virtue sort of undergirding human life is central to the idea of the ideal type, which is that a man can closely adhere to the Tao and live a life that is flourishing and good and respectable. And a lot of ancient philosophy was aimed at how do we do this? Mm -hmm. What is the ideal man exactly? They assumed there was one. They assumed there was a good way to live. And not only that, but they assumed that it could be taught to students. It could be learned and it could be emulated and repeated. And the way that that shakes down into classical education is that one of the things that we want to do as educators is to give our students a vision of this ideal type. And we as a school have, you know, we, we tie ourselves into Christianity. And so our, our ideal type is classic Sunday school answer, Jesus, yep. right? Someone that is good. And so we, we set this ideal before them and then ask, how can we achieve this ideal? And it's kind of accomplished in two different ways, classically. This ideal type is taught. One is through mythos, myth, and example, right? It's to give a student a vision of what it looks like and have the student emulate it. And this was almost done accidentally in the ancient world. A myth maker would see something he admired and then record that action. And then that action would get passed down as an example to emulate. And then as they would tell the story, the student would see himself in the shoes of the hero and he would be encouraged to, you know, put himself in the place of in that story and live it out and, and try to emulate that virtue on his own. And that's what we do in English class, right? We present before them a story and then we ask them to live truthfully in that moment 
to understand what is right and wrong in the situation. So you ask, you you brought up Friar Lawrence last podcast, and was it right for him to do that thing that he did? What you are doing is using mythos as a an avenue into the ideal type, right? And there are a few different examples of these. Like we still do it with superheroes, mm-hmm. right? You, you and like the ideal type exists, whether we would like to admit it in, mo- in the modern world or not, because we have put before ourselves examples of bravery, goodness, uh, and self-sacrifice and lauded them, yeah. even if we haven't overtly said we're doing is it. Is it fair to say that the ideal type is synonymous with hero? I, I, I kind of feel like it's different. I, I, it I don't. Combines, I, it combines multiple things. It mm-hmm. combines. I don't. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a hero. I would say it's someone that is willing to do heroic things if the moment calls for them. Right. Mm-hmm. So heroes. We also have war movies that espouse the bravery of one warrior or show that war is deplorable and we should avoid it. Right. Both virtues and talking about human life. And then even the, how much we talk about Abraham Lincoln. Right. As a type. Right. He's a good president. He's an honorable man. He's a good speaker. We still set before ourselves these types, even in modern life. We just might not call them by the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And there is a great example of this in the ancient world, uh, a pretty well-known speech from Pericles that he gave as a funeral oration when a bunch of Athenian soldiers had died. And he got up and he began to speak. And he said, I'm not going to overpraise these guys because people are in the audience who knew them. And, uh, you know, sometimes if you overpraise, it sort of sours the moment. But if I underpraise, it does the same thing. So instead, I'm simply going to talk about the way that we live and what they died for. And it's it's a really arresting speech. And part of it is, he says, for we study taste with economy and philosophy without effeminacy and employ wealth rather for opportunity of action than for boastfulness of talking. While poverty is nothing disgraceful for a man to confess, but not to escape it by exertion is more disgraceful. And then he goes on to talk about all of these other things, but he he sort of outlines what the ideal type was for an Athenian, someone that was active in politics and understood what was happening, someone that was ready for action. The very last sentence is especially good. For we have this characteristic also in a remarkable degree, that we are at the same time most daring and most calculating in what we take in hand, whereas to other men it is ignorance that brings daring, while calculation brings fear. Mm. So they know what they're doing, and yet they do it anyway. And so this is setting before someone a a type to be emulated, right? Pericles had this idea of what it meant to be a good man living in culture and set it before his listeners. And we actually study that in history. And I have, you know, with some friends of mine, like thought at length about this particular thing and tried to apply it to our lives because even without questioning it, we can recognize that some of those things are good, right? And then, so that's one side. We set before ourselves mythos, literature, can examples. I, can I, I have a question. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So was there only one ideal type? Mm. Like what you just described was Pericles' funeral oration of the Athenians. I would think that the Spartans would look at that and say, and think that that was, that was silly. That's not the ideal type. The ideal type is this kind of person. Um, so that actually plays right into what I'm going into next. So yes and no, mm-hmm. right? The idea was that, there is one, mm-hmm. right? We just haven't found it yet. Mm-hmm. There is a good government that will completely satisfy all peoples. There is a right way for man to live in culture, and we have to work to try to get is there. Is the answer philosophy? No. Say, not philosophy. <laughs> the answer is philosophy. Don't you also do this in your English class? So it's not just through the 
history department at the school, but like, it, isn't the Iliad all about showing that mythos? And isn't oh, that absolutely. Okay. That's what I do. I was trying to say Pericles we study in history, but yeah. my whole year is it's putting these putting these examples in front yeah. of people of bravery and goodness and and even examples of people doing it wrong, right? Yeah. Achilles making mistakes involving anger and Odysseus making mistakes about, you know, valuing adventure over family. And yeah. it's not just showing them a hero, but showing them how people sometimes screw it up. But by the time, but by showing them how they screw it up and the student recognizes it as a screw up, that means that they have some concept of what is oh, the wow. correct one. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So it's actually sometimes we ask the kids to play devil's advocate and argue in support of something that is not very supportable, like treason, mm-hmm. or have them argue on the side of Odysseus staying away from home and abandoning his wife and kid, right? Mm-hmm. So they have to think about this from the other side. And that's actually the, the other side of it. So on one side, we give examples. And the teacher, as he is involved... I'll go into in a second because he is an example of this ideal type, or at yeah. least should be. The teacher should be. On the other side, we have dialectic evaluation. So we we talk about what makes the ideal man because, yeah, there's argument about it. Spartans would think something different than Athenians. They'd all agree that it was out there, but they'd agree, disagree on how to get there. And so we evaluate, okay, was this a good thing to do? And what does it mean to get there? And this is where philosophy comes in. It's aiming at that eventual ideal type, but underlying that conversation is the knowledge that there is one, right? Way out there in the distance. And that's why we have the conversation, to find out what that is and emulate it as closely as possible. And this is where Cicero comes in. So Cicero... AJ AJ has like four books in front of him right now. Yeah, I've got them all open to these little marks. Uh, So Cicero was writing a letter to his kid, and he said, as his kid began his studies in school, and he said, my son... Every part of philosophy is fruitful and rewarding, none barren or desolate. But the most luxuriantly fertile field of all is that of our moral obligations, since if we clearly understand these, we have mastered the rules for leading a good and consistent life. So he valued moral philosophy as a way to the good life, the ideal type. No doubt you are conscientiously attending and absorbing the lectures on this subject by my friend Cratipus. <laughs> cough, cough. You better, yeah. you better be Seriously. going to school. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And he is our leading contemporary philosopher. Nevertheless, I hope to make your ears ring with this kind of moralizing from every quarter. Indeed, if it were only possible, I should like them to hear nothing else. This is a plea from one of the greatest orators the world yeah. has known to his son to hear primarily moral philosophy something that you probably won't hear from parents sending mm. their kids to schools, right? Moral philosophy as an end is not even really on the radar. It's not that they disagree with it. It's just not there at all. I want you to be a doctor. Yeah, exactly. It's not, I want you to learn what makes a good man and then have that manifest in your life. And he goes on to discuss with his son and all these moral concepts, like, is it okay for a good man who would do good for the world to steal a loaf of bread. Is one bad act okay if it brings a lot of good? And that's where the dialectic comes in. So it's the two sides of the same coin. We so ask one is question, examples? One is an examples, and this involves the teacher, right? Mm-hmm. The teacher should live out the examples. So the teacher is living embodiment of the example. The teacher should, Ideally, be, yes. a good, should be the ideal Must be type. consistent. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot to ask of students. And if you are asking them to emulate the ideal type while not doing it yourself, it's you know, hypocrisy. Well, this is kind of like what St. Paul says to either the Corinthians or in one of his letters where he says, all right, if you can't, if you can't emulate Jesus, then start with emulating me. me. Yeah. 
And then, like, start with emulating me, and then as you get better, then you can emulate Jesus. I think I'm paraphrasing his idea. But there's a consistency between them. But there's a consistency, because he's saying, like, I want to. I want to be like Christ, so I am trying to emulate this type. And if you need a living embodiment example to, if if you're not doing it, like, if you can't, do it because you can't see Jesus. Well, you can see and touch and talk to me. So emulate me for now until you get better at it. I, I kind of think about that in the way of of teaching and 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 um, uh, with the students. Well, if you can't you can't be a perfect student, try to be like me because <laughs> I'm trying to be a perfect student you know, and so I want to. And you may not want to. You, you've shared a funny example before about um, in your leadership class that instead of you asking the students to you want to tell it. Yeah. So in our leadership class, we're doing hermeneutics. And um, so we asked the three questions, what does the Bible say? What are the principles we can derive from this? Or what does the Bible mean? And then the last one should be some kind of application. And I've just been finding that I've been getting some like real weak sauce answers to application, (laughs) probably because they realize that as soon as they say it, it's an indictment on their own actions. So to make it a little bit more fun, I have changed the question to, as opposed to application, it's how can Donaldson be a better Christian? And that man has opened up a whole <laughs> basket of like that's so good. they are putting a load on my unworthy shoulders. You can quit being so ugly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's like um, anyway. So, but that, but then, um, but that has been good because then I can say like, wow, this is an intense thing, and I, this is what I, I, I can be honest with them, and I can say I want to be this. Yeah. What you guys are describing and what Scripture is commanding, I want to be this. And mm-hmm. some kids will be like. I think I want to be that way too. I'm like, yeah, let's do this thing. And there is a danger to doing one over the other. Sure. Right? If, I, if we mm-hmm. only give examples, mm-hmm. they can they can be too credulous. Mm-hmm. They can follow. They can fling themselves into bravery when bravery is not called for. Mm-hmm. And if we if it is only dialectic and evaluation, you can chip and chip and chip away and ask questions of something until there is nothing left. Yeah. Describe what you mean by dialectic. So dialectic is it's the form that. Plato wrote in, it's the form that Aristotle wrote in, where one guy would ask questions and the other would respond to them. The way that I'm thinking of it or using it is criticism, critical thinking. We ask questions of something and ask it to give answers Mm -hmm. to our questions. And so we ask, all right, is this good only in certain situations? Or the the question that Cicero asked, right? Can a good man steal a loaf of bread so he can continue going on doing good? Mm -hmm. That's evaluation, right? Critical thinking. But if you do too much evaluation and ask it too many questions... Well, you're going to, and oops, sorry, I lost my microphone there for a second. You're going to chip and chip and chip away at whatever it is you're thinking about until there's nothing left. It's a corrosive tool. It's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, a tool that carves away rather than adding to. Mm -hmm. So you can think about it like the examples and the teacher as presenting a block of marble and then the dialectic or evaluation is carving it down to a statue. Mm -hmm. You can keep on carving. And then you get nothing. And then you get nothing. Yeah. Uh, But you got to have something to carve from. So that is so. Is the education. ideal type the thing we have in our mind of what we're trying to carve? It's the end of the carving. So yes. You, yeah. 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 So the statue, the, the statue end. at the end. At the end. Okay. That's what we're trying to get to. And, and the example would be: here's a statue that kind of looks like it, or here's an example. Here's a right. statue that is. That so is, the Iliad would point to examples and say, "This is what that looks like." Odyssey would point to examples of what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Right. But but none of them is perfect. Like that's exactly. Kinda, yeah. None of them is perfect, and this is where why I take beef with philosophy as the end of man. But it is. Is. No, because philosophy is aimed... Spoken like a potter. <laughs> <laughs> but philosophy is aimed at human flourishing, living the good life, and doing good. If philosophy is our aim, and 
David Hicks points this out, you can know the right thing to do and not do it. And not do it. Sure. Right? Our, our students can know the right things to say. They can know the moral things to do and they cannot do them. And that is a faulty person. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. Just like if your computer knew all the right commands to run, it just didn't, didn't do, do it. it. Right? So that's, that is one possible end of philosophy. You need, you need the spirited soul. Yeah. The true end should be one that yep. acts into the world. Uh, we talked about leisure a couple episodes ago and Peeper does this funny thing. We... We joked before about how he doesn't define his terms at the very beginning, which is frustrating. He also adds words in at the end, and so for the first, <laughs> so for the first three sections of this of the essay, he's just talking about leisure, leisure, leisure. And then in book four, he adds he adds active to it, and then only calls it active leisure for books four and five, which is really frustrating because leisure is also non-activity. So uh, he changes his terms, doesn't define them, but even he's getting at this thing of like you, you must. You must do something. There must yeah. be an activity that you that you do or some action that you take. Yeah. And I think in the Tripartite Soul podcast, we talked about how there's there's always, at least in the ancient world, there was a sort of a low-grade cold war between mm-hmm. what they thought was more important, the rational soul or the spirited soul. Yep. Which And then the claim is always that, like, the poets tended more towards the spirited and the philosophers tended, towards the ration, tended more towards the rational. And which one actually drove the, the chariot, so to speak. Uh, and, I, and I know that David Hicks talks about that little, that tension in Norms and Nobility. Mm-hmm. And I, that's something I'd never known. I think when we learn the classics or the classical, we tend to think that they are all speaking with this sort of one voice right. from the ancients. But in reality, they had their own disagreements yeah. as to as and, how these things worked. And um, all, we, all we have are the people who wrote something down and it was kept over time. It, so there could have been people arguing the other side and we just don't have that for argument. For sure. Right. The only thing we may know about them is how they were characterized in a By in, in an someone essay. else. Yeah. And anyway. he, he points out that even while they're arguing, they're still different sides of the same coin, it's, right? Yeah. They're still yeah, both yeah. agreeing that there's an there's ideal an type. Ideal. It's just different, different it, yeah. ways of expressing it. So all, that's classical education, right? Trying to aim our students towards this ideal type. And the ideal man, in our opinion, is one who is educated, who knows how to use his words, who understands the world, who understands why things are happening. Uh, but that's kind of a big revelation for students to realize that I don't really care what job you get mm. so as you, so long as you are living well. You are living a good life doing whatever it is you're doing. I don't care if you're making a lot of money. I care if you are being a good person. But how do you dis- how can you describe the concept of the ideal type to the student and not have them hear, "Oh crap, they want me to be perfect." Mm. That's I mean that, again, the teacher has to live it out and say, "We're not perfect, but that doesn't excuse us from emulation." And I never tell my students this. I never mm. would say, "Here's where we're trying to get. Let me outline for you." Right? It's a step, right? It should be sort of an idea that they gradually accumulate through their years of education. Mm-hmm. And then only maybe near the end, you can ask the overall question, which is, what is, like, give me a full picture of the ideal life, and they should be able to respond to you. So that's that's one side. Yeah. And in contrast, we can talk about modern education, because I actually had this conversation with a friend of mine who had done some student teaching here at our school. And then we had a big conversation about the worldviews behind the way that we build our school and our hiring practices. And I pointed out that public schools are still working from a worldview. They are still making these decisions about what the ideal man is. They're just doing it in a vacuum. Mm. So they, they say that there's a lot of, they're bringing in all perspectives. All perspectives are welcome, but that's not true. There are some perspectives they wouldn't allow, right? They wouldn't allow a white supremacist to speak, probably. They wouldn't let in a teacher 
who regularly teaches kids that pedophilia is the way to go, right? These are perspectives that are not allowed. So they still are making decisions about what the ideal man is. Yeah. And in their estimation, he is one who hears a lot of different opinions. And we simply narrow that down to fewer mm-hmm. opinions. And they aim... And so aside from the question of morality, to separate themselves from this question, they aim for skills, right? Skill sets. Yeah. And how to most effectively teach students these skills. C.S. Lewis's criticism of that is that we can give the students all the skills in the world, but without a moral education, what we are making is clever devils. People who can convince people to do anything. They can use their words cleverly to be awful on the internet in YouTube comments, right? And... Or bilk people out of money. If we only give them skills but no, no morality, we are simply giving them the tools to do good or evil as they see fit. And... It just gives them enough to get along. And then if they use the skills, they get a job, and at the end of their life, they're like, what have I made of this? Yeah. You know, it's a, it's sort of a hitting the nice little mean there in the middle. And it also excuses the teacher from any greater culpability. I don't have to be a good person because that's not what I'm teaching about anyway. I just teach skills. I'm just teaching math, right? Whether or not they emulate me, I could give a crap. So, I mean, a darn. Oh, shoot. I, I, is that a – Whatever. David Hicks even mentions that in Norms and Nobility. He quotes, um, I think, Francis Bacon, who says, to give man knowledge is to give him a sword. And then Hicks' commentary on that, he says, to teach man the devastating science of swordsmanship and not the moral implications and responsibilities that come with wielding a sword is to unloose upon the world both a murderer and a victim. And he's making that comment about... If yeah, if you you can give a man all the skills in the world, but if you do not tell, give him the reason as to what good or what these skills ought to be used for, um, you're not only making the world a worse place because you've 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 raised the capacity of somebody without direction. You're also doing a violence to the to person them. that you're teaching because you're giving them a skill without giving them a direction, and then they can go off and they can. They can do violence to their own soul and they can do violence to others. And it's sort of almost like condemnation. Um, yeah. You also do damage to motivation, right? Mm-hmm. If you tell a kid that he is the ultimate authority on what justice, good, and, you know, what what makes a good man is, then why does he have to try for anything? How could a kid fail to live up to what he already is? Or he, he takes it seriously and the complete weight of anxiety hangs on them because they need to come up with the entire model and the entire system themselves and they can't because they don't have enough information and and they feel like they ought to. And I, I think this is a big driver of anxiety in in our world is that we've said you need to invent the entire cosmos and how it works. Yeah. And that is such a, uh, a such a massive thing that the kids who are sensitive enough to feel the weight of that feel the anxiety that comes with that. And it's and it's quite destructive. And a, a world swept of the common moral ideals is one that operates only on our baser instincts. Mm -hmm. No wonder kids focus on whether or not they're funny, pretty, well-liked, how many Facebook followers they have. (laughs) What else, what other system can they evaluate themselves upon, Mm -hmm. right? The only way they can evaluate themselves is based on how much people like them because they are creating their own morality instead of evaluating themselves and saying, yeah, maybe I fail at school sometimes, maybe I'm not that pretty, but I'm a good person. I do good things evaluated against this enduring ideal that has been here for centuries and centuries and centuries prior to Descartes, who was kind of the beginning of the turn. Uh, So is the problem 
that a different ideal type has been put forward as the ideal or the loss of the ideal type? Yes and no. So there's the ideal type that has been put forward is one where you, it's a moral relativist one. Yeah. Where all morals are relative to where you grow up or what your specific place is, which is effectively saying morals do not exist. So would this be the Nietzschean Nietzschean ideal type? There's only power, there is no truth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, only power, you define your own morals. So yeah, I mean, he wasn't really a relativist. Nietzsche, he was a nihilist, so he actually had some worldview precepts to go with. Moral relativism says, you know, it's all relative. There are some, but it just, no no one is any better than the other. And so that effectively... sounds exhausting. (laughs) Yes, it sounds exhausting. (laughs) What that effectively means is that there there isn't one, and the students can make up what they want to make up. So yes and no, there is an ideal type. It's one of tolerance, which effectively means more relativism, built into the loss and complete chaos that follows moral to relativism, which means no one knows what's right. Yeah. No one knows what's going on. And that's that's kind of what creates a lot of our social confusion is because if every person is the authority on what is right and wrong, then you're just kind of guessing. Mm. And if you offend people, it's, you know, you've offended people and you kind of have to deal with that now. So the best you can hope for is like a like a, a nonviolent coexistence, right? Like the best you can hope for is just a peace. You, uh, yeah. No it's just, you guys not to, it's just for these all these different views of how the world works to kind of not butt up against each other. There's no cohesion. There's no sort of social fabric where we're all part of this of um, like if the ideal type, I mean, this is an interesting question. Can the ideal type ever be pursued outside of a community that agrees on the same thing that agrees on the perception of the ideal type? I I think you can, I think you pursue it. I was going to say like the monk in the cave uh, debate that we've had. I was going to say that man, man cannot, live without it like we we are tied to an idea of what makes a good person and so even as the grand majority of our culture espouses moral relativism we don't live it right we Mm. still say that equality freedom and tolerance are virtues that must be followed and that simple claim saying that we must be tolerant and equal and free are moral precepts, right? right? The, by saying all things, yeah. Rel- the big problem with moral relativism is that it's self-contradicting, yeah. right? So it, it cannot sustain itself. And that's the problem we're running into is saying that there are no morals while at the same time demanding that everyone follow a certain set of morals. Yeah. Sorry. I, um, w- my first question is just what do we do? Uh, uh, but I, I'm curious, do you still see this in your classroom that uh, that moral relativism uh, from the students? Yeah, I, I see To Graham's it. question, we, I would say we are a community that is not, um, does not embrace moral relativism as a value, right, right? We would say that there are certain things that are true, but has that even crept in too? Oh, I mean, we're a hospital, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, that's what a classical school, we are, and I know I can get a little too passionate about this, but in many ways, like, a hospital is a great analogy or this little outpost of doing something differently plunked in a world that is is rapidly moving away from like sort of completely coming the wheels are falling off in terms of social cohesion in terms of the idea of this sort of ideal type we're a dead horse in a piranha pond 
Yes, uh, gross. I can, <laughs> every, I'm just, I'm just I can about hear that. it. Oh. I can oh. hear it. We just been we've just been too serious. I've been you know I get <laughs> I get really nothing. excited about yeah. something and then I forget that fun analogies are so yeah. Important. So in many ways, yes, students are coming in and come with a worldview like half baked into their mm. un- understanding because they're on the internet, they're in the world, their parents are on the internet, the parents are in the world. They spend more time on the internet than they spend in school. And mm. so, and I mean, we do too. I, I know that as a teacher, I fi- I feel the fight. I feel the tension between like um um there's just like a different there's just like a different air on campus than there is in the world i mean i haven't thought too much about it to be able to put it into more a more coherent thought but by doing school the way that we're doing and by um really coming down and making claims about what is man and what makes man happy and aligning ourselves with those claims that have come uh, before us in Western civilization, one that's not a popular thing in the modern world, um, and students are coming into it with this being their sort of first exposure to it. Um, they're not; they haven't um, been living in a culture that that sort of talks about this. Um, when, when my wife and I we lived in Amsterdam uh, right after we got married, and we went to this church that was a church plant from a, a church in the U.S., and they were, it was a sort of pretty young church, and they were reaching Dutch converts who had never experienced Christianity at all, but having lived in a country that was filled with churches, right? But churches that had been empty for about two generations. So they, so they were sort of going through this rediscovery of this thing that had been under their noses along and was, were very excited about their own history. And I kind of feel like a classical school is doing the same thing. Um, we as teachers are learning this. Um, um, maybe our grandparents were closer to how, like, they were before the post-war progressive education really took hold. Um, but we get lots of parents say, man, I wish this was the school I went to when I was in high school. And I know we feel that way, that this was the kind of education that we wish we had. And so the students that we have coming in are kids who were raised by people who were raised by the last generation that had had a pre uh, a progressive style of education. So it's many generations removed. So yeah, there's a, it's a lot of um, um, uh, Re- renaissance. Rehab. It's a lot of yeah, re- yeah. It's a lot of rediscovering a heritage that um, we had had for a long time. One area of study that I haven't done that I want to do is to go back and read the sort of proto. Um, uh, progressive educators and see like what were their beefs with the way mm, classical education or the way education had gone that caused them to want to do the sort of progressive education that we have nowadays that a lot of people are finding so um, soul sucking. Um, it's like, like um, anyway, let's just yeah. I I run into the philosophy among students when I say, you know, I will bring up some moral precept and. Like basic stuff, like murder is bad, and they're like, "Well, that's just like according to the Christian worldview." Your, your opinion, man. You, you're Christian. We have a lot of a, uh, a lot of specific allusions in this podcast. Yeah. Uh, and and I ask a student to to tell me whether or not it's wrong to eat a baby in front of everyone else, and they're like, "According to what? My opinion." And then that's uh, that's the freshman relativism that I've heard college educators talk about, yeah, right? Sure. When they get kids. They have to. I, I one educator was like the first time. First time they show up in my class, I asked them if I took a small human child and started eating them on this desk, would you stop me? And a lot of the kids say no. Scary. And they have to 
deal with that as a as basically an undergirding worldview before they can even move into the rest of philosophy. Yeah. And so I run into that in class all the time. So so maybe so Graham's analogy of the hospital is really good for what you're talking about, AJ. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so then what do you, what do you do when they are in your hospital room of ninth grade? Like you do you put for them you do put the mythos in front of them. But what if it doesn't take? What if what if they read it and they go, okay, well, thanks for sharing. I help them. So there's a couple of things I can do. I help them shake out what the long-term effects of this are. Like if you can't tell me not to eat a child, then why do we have a justice system? Mm, because good. someone's telling someone not to do stuff, yeah. right? And you like the justice system. Would you be grumpy if I took your lunch? And Would, one day you may be part of it. Like if you, yeah, you know, if you want to be saying. a lawyer, if you want to be oh, a judge, yeah. like one day you may or be part of it. you might be sitting in judgment because you thought you were your own definition of what's right and wrong. Sure. And I make them realize that even though they might say they believe in the relativism, they don't live it, right? If I punched them and stole mm -hmm, their lunch, mm -hmm. they would get grumpy about it. Yeah. Whereas a moral relativist couldn't get grumpy about it. So that's one thing. And the other thing is I just let them live. Mm. Like these things will... The, the great thing about the ideal type is that it's enduring, right? It's lived for centuries and centuries. And so when they get to 32 and they realize, oh, I've been seeking nothing but money or I've been doing these cruel things and now I see the consequences that that has brought in my life and they can think back to my class and see a different way to go about human life, then that's when it, when it kind of hits. I mean, I'm having those realizations now yeah. where – you know, the psalmist says he rejoices in God's laws. And as a kid, I was like, that doesn't make any sense. This sounds lame. I'm flipping hate rules. And now as, you know, a, a guy in his 30s, I'm like, well, yeah, I really wish I'd followed some of those. Yeah. And they're good for humans. I'm, I'm trying to look up a quote right now. It's from, um, I forget who wrote it, but it was an introduction to the Iliad from the 1500s. I don't know. And it says that um, experience is the teacher of fools. Uh, and I don't but I, that is still how I am taught. Like, I'm sure I was taught all these moral precepts of how I should act, but I did not actually learn. They did not um, indwell me until, like, I made a mistake and then I got the consequence from that. And that's similar to what you're like, oh, that thing I could have learned before. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm actually learning. Now I'm thing. learning. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, yeah, I'm sure the students will do But it same. shouldn't be that way. Like, we, we should have, I mean, we don't want, like, it makes me sad to think that the students have to leave and then learn these things by experience. Um, surely there's a way that, and this comes back to my question about, about um, community. Yeah. Like, we only get students a certain amount of hours a week. But if everything in their lives were ordered towards having them want to reach the ideal type, um, it would we would probably have an easier time changing affections to that which is good. But the charge against that is that we would be creating snobs or that we would be creating aristocrats or we would be creating yeah. people that think that they're better than people. And that's, um, how, that's how Norms and Nobility opens. And that's how Norms and Nobility opens. Yeah. And this is what Catherine Ball, friend of the podcast, teases me about a lot, is that deep down I secretly want to reestablish some kind of aristocracy. Um, uh, to, uh, is it a joke? Because it's, it? it's a community of people that are, that are uh, actively together seeking um, the, the, the young to be uh, more the ideal type. But that's a different definition than I know. the aristocracy we know, right? It's aristocracy funny. is... Money stuff. Well, how well has to do with land and powdered wigs and that kind of thing. Land and power and money. And if you if you really intend to reestablish a group of people who wants so everyone to live well, I think that's a good end. And, and that's why we teach our so kids like classical right, education is the democratization of aristocracy. I mean, like that's one way to think about it mm -hmm. is that we are trying to bring higher ideals of like cultivation and gentlemanliness and gallantry and these sort of things that we kind of maybe laugh at at being an older thing 
to as many people as possible. And that's what I really love about Veritas is because the model of what it is and the relative affordability. Now, I know that it still costs money to send a child here, but because of the university model, we don't need to get into it. But the relative affordability does mean that we tend to draw more middle class than like a, a higher demographic of, of of school. And so that's why I love this idea of, of sort of the democratization of aristocracy, which I know is going to like people are going to laugh at me for that. <laughs> well, that's isn't that what we're doing right now? Yeah. I mean, a podcast is free. Yep. We're trying to bring this to people who can't afford it. Like, even if you can't attend Veritas, you can still listen to our goofy podcast mm-hmm. and get at least a couple of English teachers. I just don't know if I'd call it the aristocracy, though. Yeah. Maybe, I, like, maybe in the original sense of it, but I'm, I'm thinking, like, French Revolution, like, those aristocrats, and we don't want but that. But those are those are like old and fat, and, like, that's yes. when aristocracy has, has decayed. Yes. Okay, good. So, like, a very original yeah. meaning of what that term means. Maybe. Anyway. I like Aristotle a lot, so I would dig. <laughs> yeah, sure. I want everyone to be like him, so. Oh, is that aristocracy comes from is that Aristotle, isn't that? Is it really? Mind, hold on. What? Etymology.com, please give us <laughs> oh your Oh, my knowledge. goodness. So I'm an Aristotelian aristocrat. I have, yeah, that makes sense. I hope this is true. I hope this is true, too. We're we are furiously Googling anyway, it. I know this does not make for death this is incredible. <laughs> engaging. I will do a dramatic reading of a ninth grade essay. Which, no. Oh, please. No, I'm just oh, kidding. Please. Uh, another favorite thing from this episode is that Graham has been reading off of uh, note cards with quotes from Norms and Nobility. Are those all from the book? Um, that is note cards from my commonplace book section entitled Classical Education, So, which probably, is I guess probably like 250 note cards. Didn't you do a paideia talk on commonplace books? I don't know. Is that you? Never mind. <laughs> People <laughs> like ask me to do paideia talks and I do right, them. So the etymology of Uh-oh. aristocracy, 1560s government by those who are the best citizens. <laughs> From That's what I mean. Middle French aristocracy, modern French aristocracy, from late Latin, blah, 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 from Greek aristocratia, yeah, so. government or rule of the best, and aristocracy from aristos, best of its okay. kind, noblest, so not, brave, or most not virtuous. Aristotle. So all you Greek scholars out there are just like tutting, <laughs> tutting and sipping your tea and... How could I? I'm so sorry. Um, anyway. All right, Hannenberg. So we have dialectic. We've got examples. And... Um, we have the, so I guess, I guess I just wanted to give a picture for education, not as an assembly line of people with skills that can do jobs, Mm -hmm. right? That's turning people into machines and not giving them any real knowledge of what to do with those skills or how to use those jobs to better the world they live in, but to show that true education should be the whole forming of a man and the the preparation of for that man to flourish in the world as it is. But if you were giving them a dialectic, so an ability to chip away and ask good questions, and the best questions are the ones where they go, ooh, I don't know. Um, and you're also giving them the opportunity, you're, you're putting in front of them examples that show some things but not the thing fully. Is not education then installing in the the heart and the mind of the child, like, this sort of tension or this this struggle because they're always going to be questioning and chipping away. They're always going to be looking at examples that don't really satisfy. And it's going to be like, there's going to be the sort of internal uh, um, um, struggle as opposed to, I thought education was supposed to be leisurely and restful and like the the contemplative life was supposed to be one that was... Well, you got to have something to think about, I suppose. Yeah. um, So the slight... uh, um, so in section two of the leisure essay, we talked about this before that 
there's this association of difficulty with a thing being good. So like, because it is hard is a good thing. And that's not necessarily true, but, but, and Peeper does talk about this, the hard work that you put in is the prerequisite to have the joy at the very end. Gotcha. So to experience that leisure, to be able to experience contemplation deeply, you must put in the work um, ahead of that. Um, I wish I had the quote in front of me, but Moby Dick also talks about um, how um, we must have a, a variety of human experiences. We must have joy and sorrow together. Uh, and by doing so, um, our range of emotions will be higher and wider than someone who doesn't experience broadly. Um, he's, he's justifying sorrow in that section, but talking about how if we don't have sorrow, we will have um, less beneficial, less good. Um, a less developed soul. Kind yeah, of less developed soul. Yeah. That's good. So it all is actually connected. Cool. But hard work is necessary, but it's not the hard work that is good in and of itself. It's whether what's on the other side of that hard work is worthwhile. And, and if we're going to bring it back to Christianity, you know, Jesus says his burden is light. And that's... But it's still a burden. But it's still, burden. It's yeah, still yeah. a burden, right? Figuring out how the man is supposed to live in this world, right? The Bible is written... The, Christianity is for the simple man. It's for mm -hmm. the common person. Mm -hmm. we, we endeavor almost to make it complicated. But he calls us to do very simple things. Be kind, be gracious, be gentle. And questioning how that works out in the world is always a worthwhile exercise. But it is still basic concepts, I guess. Yes. Mm. And ones that bring you more joy as you do them. Good. Well, thanks, Hannenberg. This is really good. I'm looking forward to more subjects, I guess, from norms and nobility, but even more on kind of what this ideal type is. Yeah. It's kind of a good foundation for building on other stuff. And I'm really excited to do Abolition of Man at some point. Well, I think this podcast was a great example of the ideal type. Not perfect, <laughs> Well, maybe is obviously is obviously it, but not a perfect example. But uh, you could hold this up as as something that we can now pick apart with our mm. dialectic. That's good. Um, thank you for listening to this podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, additions, subtractions, corrections, um, clever anecdotes, hilarious jokes, um, please email us yep. at classical stuff fan art fan yeah. art please email us at classical stuff at veritasacademy.net gentlemen i am trying to read the email address oh sorry um uh, check out our website at classicalstuff.net and please like us on itunes so that other people can listen to us and we thank you for your patronage Patron, it's not even, I mean, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Like, we are thanks getting listening. nothing from this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a way to spend a Saturday is what Woo! I'm getting. Yeah. Uh, okay. Did you just nod at my keyboard like you wanted me to turn it off? <laughs> we haven't even said <laughs> goodbye yet. What, do you clap? The magic of radio. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to stop there. See you next time. Bye.